It is good to be with you, to see uh, your pretty faces, to see some of you with not-so-pretty faces. You know who you are. It, uh, it is good uh, just to be, be together this morning and uh, to worship Him through song and open His Word as we just walk through it um, this morning and uh, see what uh, God has uh, for us um, here today. So parents, I just want to let you know on the front end, uh, this week will be a little less risque than last week. So you can be at ease if you haven't read ahead. Uh, chapter 3 um, is on a different topic, although it uh, continues the same crazy that uh, started uh, a couple weeks ago. So imagine with me um, a time or a world where leaders are oftentimes corrupt. Uh, They make selfish decisions to support their own gain, where people manipulate words and meanings and meanings of words to destroy others and to stay in power. Imagine a world where pride is valued over life, and the, the killing of those that are in your way is seen as a good thing and even necessary at times. Imagine a world where fear is the most powerful weapon where the royalty or the elite, uh, they live uh, fat and happy lives, filled with drunkenness and the like, while others are stuck in poverty and oppression. Imagine a world where physical beauty is one of, if not uh, the highest commodity in society, where good people are seen as the enemy where the hatred of others, especially because of their ethnicity, is acceptable. Imagine that world. For us, um, this is the story that uh, many of us would find ourselves in today, and where we find ourselves in the midst of this story of Esther. It ought to sound familiar to us, but our current state certainly isn't the same or near as extreme as what Esther and Mordecai uh, have been enduring um, long, long ago. So here in the story, we're going to start in chapter 3 of Esther. We find ourselves uh, so far, if we go into just a little bit of review, uh, we find ourselves, we have a drunken king. He throws uh, elaborate, or for that matter, overly elaborate parties. Uh, He's offended by his wife's defiant decision to not be used as a trophy wife. So he removes her as queen and issues an edict among all of the people to ensure that no woman would ever disrespect their man. Then the king, he decides to hold an elaborate beauty pageant so that he might find himself a new wife, insert Esther. The king was pleased with Esther and her year of beauty treatments, (laughs) Uh, so he chose to make her his new queen. And all the while, um, she hasn't yet told anybody about her Jewish heritage. Then Mordecai, her cousin, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king, and he tells Esther. Esther tells the king, and the guards who plotted to assassinate him were impaled on a pole for all to see. It's kind of a dramatic moment. And one would think that this is crazy enough for one story, but really, we're just warming up. Uh, There is much uh, more crazy to come. And uh, today we find ourselves in the midst of our own crazy where some of us feel like we've just, as a culture, as a country, as a world for that matter, we have just jumped off a cliff and just gone mad. But I want us to know this morning that God is still enacting His plan. He is still on His throne, 
and he is still working his plan for his good and for his name. So my hope today is that we see a couple of things. I hope that we see that God's hand is moving in the story that we see and behind the scenes of Esther's life, as well as our own, so that he may fulfill his plans and that we may choose to trust him and risk it all. So let's pray this morning. God, we trust that you um, have much to say to us today. God, that you are well aware of our current state, that you are well aware of our current uh, fear, that you are well aware of our current um, trust issues, that you are well aware of our culture. And God, you're not surprised um, by a single bit of it. God, may we see today that in all times, in all of history, in today, in all of our situations, God, that you are sovereign, that you are king, that you indeed are in control. And God, that our hope is to trust you, to risk it all to trust you. So God, we ask that your word and your spirit teach us today, challenge us. May we know more of you, and may we be changed to be more like you as a result. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, turn to Esther chapter 3, and we're going to pick up on this cray-cray story. If, uh, if our students were reading this um, or telling this story, they would tell you, T. Thank you. <laughs> the rest of you are like, what? <laughs> um, T, it's the gossip. It's what's happening. Uh, what's the T? And we're going to find out there's plenty of tea <laughs> going on here. Uh, in Esther. And we've seen so far in chapter 3, it it continues. So in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, that after uh, these things, which it says that again, it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him on his throne above all the officials, the officials who were with him. We find ourselves here in the beginning, hearing again, um, after these things, as the story is being written for us to be able to see and understand. All of chapter 1 and chapter 2 continue to matter. And so we had a cliffhanger last week. We'll end up with one again today. But we find that um, Haman kind of comes into the story here, and somehow, we're not sure exactly how, but he came into power and of significant power. We're not sure the exact position that he held, but as we read the story today, we will see that uh, he had almost um, as much power, and in some ways he did uh, wield the power of the king himself. We also, if we uh, look back, uh, we'll know that uh, Haman, um, the Agagite, it's very important to the story for us to know today. It it plays into the backstory of what's going on. It refers to the fact that Haman is um, from um, the Amalekites, and it refers back to people who had the king of Agag. So if you were to look back into 1 Samuel chapter 15, you're going to see that the Malachites were um, an enemy of Israel. And even back into Exodus, where God says that uh, he will be at war with the Amalekites, which is of significant to note, that if God is going to say that he is at war with you, <laughs> we should pay attention. But here we realize that there is a deep-rooted history where um, Saul was to go into um, the land, he was to kill all of the Amalekites, he was to take nothing for himself, and Saul, um, as he was pretty good at, um, disobeyed God's order, and he took 
some of the plunder um, from the land, and he allowed um, King Agag to live. So then there's this weird, um, interesting part of the story, and, and you should read it this week in 1 Samuel 15, where um, Samuel, um, the, the priest at the time, he, he was having no part of that. And he, in fact, um, went and cut the king into pieces. So go look that up. But there's this history um, that's going on with ethnic and racial division. There's people who hate one another. And Haman hated the Jews. And the Jews likely um, had some pretty deep-rooted issues uh, with the Malachites, with people who would be called Agagites. So for Haman, uh, this promotion that he got here, um, it uh, was to influence um, the land um, significantly. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, starting this one, that he used this position, this power, to wield evil. We don't know exactly where he came from, as I said earlier. Uh, but also we see here, too, that from uh, last week, where Mordecai kind of foiled the plot to kill the king, it's quite possible that Haman somehow received credit for this and not Mordecai. And if you can imagine, if you're a king and you've got people plotting to kill you and somebody um, foils that plot, you're probably going to want to raise them up in their power and their influence. So it's quite possible that that's what happened here with Haman. So we do know that so if we were to review all of history today, which by the way we're not, if we were to review all of history, we would see that many have come into power and they have wielded it for evil. We could go on and on about kings of countries, about emperors. We could go on to presidents. We could go on and on and on about how oftentimes people in power use it for ungodly things. Check out verse 2. It goes on to say, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. We're not sure exactly why um, Mordecai was there at the king's gate, but it's quite possible that he worked somehow in the king's court. We don't think that he was just randomly there. But as Haman would walk by, everyone would bow down to Haman, except for Mordecai. So imagine that scene, if you will, where everyone except for you is bowing down. People are going to notice. It's going to matter. So we're not sure exactly why also that... um, Mordecai didn't bow down. Um, it could have been an issue of not wanting to worship him, because uh, oftentimes the um, Persians would see people in power as gods. But it's also quite possible here that Mordecai would just didn't respect him, and he wasn't willing to offer him this moment of bowing before him as an issue of respect. Um, Haman would have been someone in their culture who would have been worthy of that respect, at least in that culture. But here we have for Mordecai that it likely wasn't just one point of decision, but probably it's rather a lifetime of preparedness that led him with many of these kind of decisions along the way. So for me, I grew up playing baseball. I love playing baseball. Um, I was always in my backyard playing baseball. Did anybody else um, take the the, the old school wiffle balls, you know, the ones you can hold different ways and throw a slider or a curveball? Did anybody else like rip 
one of the pieces off of those and stuff it with um, newspaper and lead fishing weights? Anybody else do this? Nobody. Did anybody take their, their yellow wiffle ball bat? You know what I'm talking about, the, the true wiffle ball bat? And you would also do the same thing with that and then tape it up with electrical tape. Did anybody else do this? Um, we would be in my backyard and we would be doing this all summer long. And we would be out um, on the, the baseball field when I was on a team. Um, I, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I think I blocked most of it out. But um, that's a different topic for a different day. I'll probably be lying down on a couch somewhere telling somebody about it, but we won't go there. But I do remember uh, my t-ball team. We were the Padres. So if you don't know, that's actually a Major League Baseball team that hasn't done anything for a really long time. So, But we were the Padres as a t-ball team, and I don't know if you've been to t-ball games, but they are fun to watch. And my team, uh, we were probably pretty interesting to watch, although I was kind of out on the field all the time. We had this kid named Frankie. And Frankie, his job, at least according to him, during the whole game was to find as many rocks on the ball diamond as he could and stuff them in his back pocket. So he would walk around and it actually would move uh, because there were so many rocks um, on his backside. So that was what Frankie did as um, as a t-ball kid. We had our first baseman. Um, His job, you would think, would be to play first base and to catch the ball when we would try to throw it to him, which we didn't do very well. But no, his job, according to him, was to kind of just be down on the ground and kind of play in the dirt, like not even paying attention um, to what's going on there. We had a girl on our team, and I can't remember her name, but uh, she had her hat so far down and bent over that I'm not sure that she could even see um, what was happening on the field. We had outfielders, and we all know what t-ball outfielders do, right? They, they pick dandelions. <laughs> Or if they're, they're really in tune, they uh, look really hard for a four-leaf clover. Of which, side note, I've never found one. So if you're really good at finding them, you, you need to teach me. Because apparently I'm not so lucky. So we had this team. And imagine if as a high school baseball player that we still played as though we were t-ballers. Imagine that for a moment. Um, how crazy that would be. For me, as I grew up, um, we continued to learn as we went through Little League, and we had, you know, we had these rivals, and uh, we would learn um, how to throw pitches at each other at times. You might have this kind of rival as a kid playing baseball, where the pitcher would actually throw the ball at you on purpose. You guys did not grow up in the same town I did. And we would uh, learn more skills. We would learn how to, to throw it better. We would learn how to catch better. Eventually, we would learn how to pitch and how to hold the ball on different seams to get different uh, reactions um, from the ball. Uh, we would learn how to do signs. We would learn how to steal bases. And it really, honestly, wasn't until my high school years that someone actually taught me um, how to hold a bat, um, which was interesting. So we practiced this. Even as high school students, we would work on learning more and more, because at some point comes the game, right? And what you practice, it's how you're going to perform in the game. No one just shows up at a game, never learning anything about the game, never practicing, never gaining skills, never growing, and and plays awesome. And for us, what I want us to see here, that Mordecai just didn't show up one day, and 
he was all of a sudden this man of faith that wanted to honor God more than others. He would have had a, a lifetime of learning what it means how to do this, a lifetime of growing um, in these ways, and that God would have been preparing him all along because God knew that this moment on this day was going to happen. And as Haman was walking by, everyone bowed, and there stood Mordecai, unwilling to bow down. It goes on in verse 3. It says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. Mordecai was unwilling to bow, even in the face of knowing that it would cause some sort of trouble in his life. Even when others um, would encourage him and challenge him to to just bow down. Day after day, he refused to do it. And even though there were those in power that were encouraging him and challenging him to just bow down, there Mordecai stood. And we find out here at the end of verse 4, it says that for he told them that he was a Jew. Remember the history here. Haman was an Amalekite. He was an Agagite. He would be one that likely had grown up hating Jews. So not only was this guy refusing to to bow down to him, refusing to honor um, his position of authority and stroke his ego, not only that, but now this guy is somebody that for generations, me and my people have hated But we also have this idea that they're the agitators, right? The king's servants. And there they were agitating. They meddle. They used parts of the story to their end. And they stoke the fire until somebody acts. They poke the bear until he attacks. Now let's see how this starts and goes on in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. We oftentimes wonder, how is it that people could be so evil, that people could do such evil things. And, and here in this moment, I, I just want to just challenge us that evil is not beneath any of us. We all have biases. We all have um, things or people in which we hate. We all do. We've all grown up with with these things. It's been taught. It's been learned. Um, There have been things that have been passed on um, to us. There are experiences that we have had. And here, although clearly Haman was um, already um, significantly um, tarnished, 
we see that he was filled with fury. These agitators came along and they poked the bear. They began to stir the pot uh, more and more. And as Mordecai continued to refuse, um, it just, this fire um, got um, bigger and bigger. So if you think back to your week, I'm betting for all of us there are things that would begin to feed our fury. Maybe, maybe it was your kids. <laughs> kids never do that, right? Maybe you're a kid here today, and your parents, oh, boy, did they poke the bear. And you wanted to just give it to them. Maybe it was somebody at work. Maybe you've been watching TV or reading Facebook way too much. And there just seems to be this continual poking. It's easy to look at this story of Haman and think, man, I'd never be like that. But I want to challenge us. We all have selfish pride within us. I want to challenge us to look at ourselves for a moment. That there are times that we choose to embrace evil. We choose to embrace the agitators. We choose to embrace um, those who might say something is true even though we know it's not so that it might justify how we think, how we feel, what we say, and what we do. It's easy to look at Haman and say, man, that guy is really messed up. He is really evil. But I think there's a lot of him in us. So Haman hears that um, not only is Mordecai refusing to bow down to him, now he finds out that he is a Jew, take all of their, their background and their heritage, and that this fury um, is just stoked. This fire is stoked, and it goes on to, to realize that he doesn't just want to um, take out Mordecai now. Now he wants to destroy all of his people. It just grew and gasoline was poured onto this fire, and now you have this blazing inferno, this forest fire, rising in Haman's heart and his mind, and he has the power to do something with it. So you say, well, how, how do we choose differently? How do we say no um, to those that might be agitators in our own life or those things that are just agitating us that make us want... Um, to do the wrong thing and somehow call it right. In 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7, it says this. It says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So what do we do in this moment where people are just poking Humble yourselves. It is the pride that wells up in us. I know it does in me, that I want to speak up. I want to win. And it sometimes I, I want to be dominant in that moment and make sure everybody around me knows that I'm, I'm the one in charge and you need to do what I say. Here in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, humble yourselves. Just to take a step back, take a breath, 
and acknowledge that you and I, we, we are not God. None of us. We're not him. And the issues that people have, they're really not with us. They're really probably with God. But take a step back, breathe, humble ourselves, realize that we serve under a mighty king, and we are not him. And then it says this, uh, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So in in this world where we have so many um, truths that are being said, right? It's hard to realize what in the world is true anymore because everybody has their own version of what they might call truth. And we're trying to figure out what do we do, how do we decide things. Um, and, and I think not just do we need to humble ourselves, but we need to realize that what we're trusting in isn't our own understanding of things. That for us, we're to trust under the mighty hand of God. That even though at times I don't know how to act, what's, what's true or what's right, but I can humble myself because God's hand is mighty. I don't have to know. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to at times even do anything about it. But I, I do need to humble myself under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time he might exalt us. And then in verse 7 and 1 Peter 5, casting all our anxieties on him. Imagine if we did that. I mean, every day and every moment, we just cast all of our anxieties, all of our cares, all of our worries on God. I mean, think about the things that you've been worried about this morning. Think about your week and the things at home that you're frustrated about, you're worried about, you're anxious about. Things in your your home, your work, things in your neighborhood, your schedule, what people might think of you if you do something or don't do something or believe something or don't believe something. All of the things that we feel like we have to say something about all of this that's going on. And somehow that becomes the driving force for all of us. Peter reminds us to cast all of our anxieties on him. Why? Because God cares for us. God knows. God cares for us. So let's go back to Esther in chapter 3. In verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Um, all, all that to say they were, they were throwing dice. Haman was clearly some sort of spiritual, superstitious kind of guy. And they're trying to figure out, well, either when do we go and tell the king about this plan to take out all of the Jews, or when are we actually going to enact it? That's how he did it. Something as important as wiping out um, a whole of people and culture. Um, they threw dice. In verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Again, here we have this deceitful language 
um, that's being used. It's polished words, um, some truth that's mixed in there to get what Haman wants of the king, to deceive him, if only by just a little bit, to stroke his ego just a little bit so that he might agree with you and do what you want or he wants. For me in, in high school, much to my shame, I had a teacher that called me the master manipulator. Yeah. So in high school, I'm like, yeah, I thought that was awesome, um, that I had this skill, this ability to manipulate things and people. And in fact, uh, she said it because um, I didn't like what she was saying one day about our homework. So I, right there in the middle of class, English class, I, I organized this sit-in <laughs> um, as she was talking. And we turned around in our desk, and we faced the back of the room, and, and there she was. I mean, it, it sounds awful, right? You could say it. Yeah, it was awful. But there in my own sin, I, I was proud of this moment, and incredibly proud, as a matter of fact. And um, in that moment... I realize the power that we have to use our words to manipulate people to get what we want. And you see this more and more in our American culture, right? You see it more and more in the things that you read, more and more on the things that you watch, where language is used. And if we're honest, we all we all do this at different levels in different times. But here, um, Haman used this language to, to kind of stroke the ego of the king to, to get what he wants, although there are certainly um, bits of truth um, that are in here. Um, he slanted the story, even if ever so slightly, um, to accomplish his own agenda, that the king might also agree to annihilate all Jews. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given you. So, I'm sorry, the money is given you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. The plot was birthed. He had this superstitious rolling the dice moment to find the exact time that he wanted to do it. He goes to the king. He strokes his ego. He tells him bits of truth. He manipulates the situation. He gets what he wants. And not only does the king agree to it, he gives Haman every power and authority he needs to accomplish it. And Haman now has the ability to speak as though he is the king. There's a lot of lessons that we can learn um, in this moment from the king and things that we've read about him so far. Drunkenness leads to all kinds of bad decisions. Be careful who you surround yourself with. Character in leaders is of utmost importance. Power, it is easily corrupted. Ego is a powerful weapon in the wrong hands. 
and that leaders must be engaged with their people. And when the people are only represented by leaders who want to gratify themselves, those people are abused. Verse 12. So then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors in all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, that in every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So Haman here uses um, the king's um, scribes. He uses the king's name and the king's ring to seal, um, to communicate um, his plan so that in every language and every tribe that was in this kingdom, that they might know and be able to fully understand what's being asked of them to annihilate the Jews, every single one of them, young and old, women and children, and don't just annihilate them, take everything they have. It just got crazy because it was a thought that started because one guy wouldn't bow down to him. One guy. And now a whole race of people are going to be annihilated and they're going to lose everything that they have. And this guy has the power to do it. So finally, uh, the revenge uh, that Haman had long wanted was about to happen. Finally, his hatred was to be enacted against the Jews. This fire that was burning, this fury in Haman, it no longer just needed a spark. It no longer needed just a slight wind to fan it into flame. It was into full rage. But interestingly enough, there are still 11 months from the time that this decree was issued before it's going to be enacted. And we begin to see even more um, behind the scenes that, that God is still in control of all that's going on. God is enacting his plan, even if what seems to be um, the, the main person in the story, as we read it so far, it seems to be Haman, and if it's not Haman, it seems to be Mordecai, but in fact, it's neither of them. Because God has his plan ready to go. He is already enacting it. We just don't fully see it just yet. So this 11 months that's still to go, is it just ironic good fortune that that's the way the dice fell on that particular day? I don't think so. I think God has his hands all over this so that he might, in those 11 months, prepare everything that he wanted to happen. So in verse 14, it says that a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. That one day where all Jews are going to be annihilated. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman, they sat down to drink. 
but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So we end um, this chapter uh, with this evil plot that's set into motion. We see that God's people are confused, likely afraid, and likely thrown into all kinds of worry uh, with what's going to happen. And those that um, have enacted this evil plan, we see those two guys sitting down with themselves, enjoying another drinking party. Seems strange. Um, but here it is. This plan had been acted. The word had gone out. The Jewish people would obviously have heard about it, that in 11 months they were going to be wiped out. Imagine. Imagine if that were us here, that we knew. Starting today, there's 11 months before somebody with the power and ability to do so is going to come here on one day in 11 months on an exact day and they're going to wipe us all out. That would probably stir something in us, right? Some of you would, would be pulling out your weapons. Some of you would never come back. Um, some of us would probably curl up into a fetal position and, and begin crying. But as the, the time went on, you know, we would know that we've only got a certain amount of days left. For us, as Peter said, to, in those moments, to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves and to trust, trust in the one who can. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this crazy story about drunkenness, abuse, power, people in leadership that shouldn't be? There's, there's all of the risqueness of chapter 2 that we learned about last week, this strange beauty pageant. And here, um, this plan, this plot to annihilate all of God's people in one day. I mean, is this just in here so that we might be like, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I don't think so. I think there's much more um, to what God is doing and saying um, here in this story. As he desires for us to see that he indeed is the one in control. That even when it seems like Everything has gone to pot. And in fact, we're all just going to die. Even in those moments of despair, God is fully in control. He is not surprised. He's not surprised by the things that are going on in our world, in our country, or in the whole globe. He is not surprised one bit by any of it. He is not worried uh, one bit about any of it. Um, God is not um, posting rants on Facebook and Twitter. He's just not. Um, God is not warehousing guns in his basement um, to, to take on the, the new militia. He's not doing that. He's, he's not. And we're his people. We are God's people. And for us, we need to act like it, even in these moments. C.S. Lewis said this, He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is not concerned 
about those things that are really happening in our politics. God's plan is so much bigger than all of that. So much bigger. And even for us, wherever we are in the world, to, to remember this, this quote that says, but he shouts in our pains, that the pain of God's people is where God shouts. It is where we hear his voice the loudest. And it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Be encouraged today. God is moving. He is absolutely, and he has an all time, but he is moving today. He is moving in our city. He is moving in our state. He is moving in our country. He is moving in the place where you work, even if you think it is a godless place. He is moving there. And he is moving throughout our entire world. Our job is to trust God, not, not to trust all that our society is telling us, not to try and figure out well, what, what, what is all of the pieces that are true and not true, uh, what, what, it, what is the exact R-naught ratio of COVID-19, uh, what's going to happen in the election um, this fall. God is not for us to be worried about those things. Our job is to trust him. And not just trust him more than others, but to trust him solely. As we continue to move into a world where truth is hard to determine and trust what other people are telling us, God will be using the spirit of discernment that he has placed in us and graced us with his spirit so that we might be able to learn as his people to hear his voice. And he just doesn't want us to trust him more than others. He wants us to trust him alone. And if he's not big enough for us to trust him alone, then he's not God. We must learn to trust him solely. The face of God should be our focus. Honoring him in all that we do and say should be our goal. Friends, God is rousing a deaf world. He is rousing a deaf world. May we be his megaphone in how we live and how we speak. So let's pray together. God, today, as we sit here, we know that things are being posted online, that news conferences are are being held. God, we know that um, articles are being published. We know that plots are being put into place. God, we know um, and we trust in the fact that you indeed are in control. God, may we be people who learn to risk it all, not just for the sake of an exciting journey, but God, that we would trust in the one who has the power and the knowledge to enact his will. And God, may you give us a spirit of discernment that we might learn better every single day to hear your voice. And God, may you change us this week. May our eyes, may our hearts, may our minds focus on your face. God, may we trust you better every day. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.